Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett. I'm here for Tuesday home time until 6pm tonight. Today, a bit more history with author and historian Brian McKinlay. Over the last month, we've heard about the various rebellions against the British by the Irish people going back centuries, culminating in the rising in 1916. Today, Brian takes us to Australia, the impact on Australia of those times and also further afield. GMOs in the Pacific, what is being done to stop their spread and also to get labelling on GMOs. I'll be speaking with two members of an NGO in New Caledonia, Frédéric Giron and Claire Chevet, who were in Australia last week. Massacres in the Philippines, unfortunately they're not an unusual happening but there's been another one of farmers in Mindanao. I'll be speaking with Peter Murphy from Human Rights Group here in Australia. And part two of my interview with pro-Palestinian activist Alex Nissen, who is um, a Jewish, Israeli, Australian activist who now works here in Australia and she's part of Women in Black. And, of course, before all that, Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane Lister, when this disgraceful, illegal, lawless tax or non-tax leak of a few thousand filthy, bloated, rich individuals and corporates, who by law are also individuals, shows, well, let's let the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, tell us. This revelation, this illegal leak, and those who leaked this attack on these people's right to privacy should be ashamed of themselves. This illegal leak shows just how evil, evil unions are. Uh, I'm a bit confused, Michaela. Explain that a bit. It's obvious. These poor, filthy, bloated, rich victims of this illegal leak are so crippled by the selfish wages and conditions demanded by evil unions and workers, take take, take, they are forced to take steps to minimise, legally minimise, their taxes when all of them, and they have told me this, all of them would love nothing more than to pay the full amount of unminimised tax they are liable for. Uh, Worldwide. Of course, worldwide, wherever there are evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, there is gross exploitation of the caring business class, forcing employers to take, reluctantly take, this action, enabling them to continue doing what's good for all of us. Uh, does the government, Michaela, plan a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal, Com- Royal Kanga mission into these practices, install a tough cop on the beat to crush caring tax avoidance employers? Uh, 
These revelations prove once and for all why we must crush the evil trade union movement. Uh, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Ensure the evil trade union movement operates within the law. Within the laws we legislate to crush, uh, sorry again, to restore balance in the cost the workers relationship. This illegal leak proves once and for all the Socialist Party must support our legislation to restore balance into the industrial equation, allowing caring employers right around the world to pay the taxes they would love to pay if it wasn't for evil union corruption and thuggery. If the Socialist Party continues to oppose this legislation under the orders of the evil union bosses who control it, it will prove once and for all it is soft on corruption and thuggery. Must say, listener, what a surprise. Who would have thought the filthy, bloated, rich worldwide would be evading, or sorry, minimising taxes and hiding their filthy, bloated wealth? But in their defence, obviously Mikhail is right, as incorrect. Reluctantly forced to take this action by the selfishness of evil unions and workers, and how could the media exploit, take advantage of illegality, as the poor Panamanian victim Mossack Fonseca exploded angrily, and this is true, how can we satirise this? The Mossack Fonseca partner attacked those using the leaked files for using the leaked files and not concentrating on prosecuting whoever leaked them, because leaking them was, is, the real crime against the law and Mossack Fonseca is a law firm so obviously it has great respect for the law. Well, the criminally leaked files frank that. In its very limited coverage of the story, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, 13 pars on a left hand buried the news page. Well, the right hand news pages were reserved for real crimes. Doll bludgers bludging, preferring to whoop it up on their excessive doll payments than accept good for all of us jobs. Albeit low paid jobs, but it gets them into the workforce, on the ladder to becoming, well, big supremo of a bank, for instance. Welfare cheats, the real threat to the true blue Aussie economy, but around the 13 pars, pictures of the Russian and Chinese big supremos, obviously wrought in their own tax systems. Well, no, neither has as yet anyway been exposed as named in the files. Vladimir's daughter's godfather got a mention, as did some Chinese official, but if Lord Rupert was happy to declare guilt by association, how come he didn't have a big picky of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country big supremo David Commies Wrong, whose big stockbroker dad set up a shell company somewhere out there in tax haven land and paid no tax to the British government for decades right up until he died. David is now defending inheriting the no tax for decades little windfall. Or even, back to Lord Rupert, just perhaps a couple of the myriad of true blue Aussie filthy bloated rich whom the files suggest are rotting the system. There is a certain guilt by association with Panama as the original Mossack of Mossack Fonseca fled Germany after World War II to escape prosecution for his role in the SS, for which the world's filthy bloated rich have so much to thank him. And as the banks here sweat under an avalanche of litigation alleging all sorts of rorts, as if, it's been one after the other in recent years, and in every case, the big supremos in the boardrooms had 
no idea what was going on, that their underlings down the line were ripping off and rorting at a great rate. And every time another rip-off and rort is exposed, they tell us just how much they regret what happened and sincere apologies to the ripped-off and rorted, how they'll review their procedures and make sure it doesn't happen again uh, until it happens again. And now talk about injustice gone mad, the overzealous, over-officious regulator wants a law to make the big supremos and boardrooms responsible for the, for the behaviour of their underlings. Something about corporate culture, but, but then some of us thought ripping off was corporate culture, so, so they're just doing their job. Anyway, they're a bit upset about all this, poor dears, and the former Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, Big Supremo, and more recently author of that financial services report for the caring business class government, David Moore and Maury, sprang to the Big Supremos and hard-working directors' defence. Charging big supremos and hard-working directors for their organisations rorting and ripping off would erode the public's trust in the banks, he asserted. <laughs> no, I've got no idea how he works that out either, listener, but that's what he said. It would prevent the banks doing what they normally do, he added. Uh, which is, David? Well, ripping off and rorting. And put that way, that might explain what he meant. Poor David almost had a heart attack when an interviewer asked whether he thought there should be an Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission into the banks. In case we're wondering, David assured us there was no need. There was no comparison between law-abiding, rorting and ripping off and the evil, evil trade unions and lazy, avaricious workers are fighting for workplace safety, for instance. Despite their commitment to fierce competition, the big four agreed they must in responding to the regulator who feels there may just be the odd problem with their culture, point to the centrality of the banking customer as we seek to enhance risk culture. After all, the customer is 100% central to rotting and ripping off. Despite the rebuff of yet another thought bubble, a once-in-a-generation opportunity showing a generation now lasts exactly one and a half days, big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull still knows it's good for all of us that the Canberra team will cease funding public schools, cease wasting on the riffraff the taxes the riffraff pay, pouring the taxes the filthy bloated rich don't pay into the struggling private colleges of the filthy bloated rich, and for goodness sake, what use is a caring business class government if it doesn't do its bit to help the selfless caring business class toss a few favours in its direction? After all, we know that's good for all of us. After coming secondary in a primary, US of the UN of the US of the world would be big supremo Donald Trump or the paw, accuse the bloke or over there the guy who beat him of only beating him to stop him. Donald becoming big supremo, tantamount to cheating and unfair play. And with that capacity for logic analysis, let's hope Donald makes it. The free world needs that sort of common sense. The other guy, Ted Crush the Poor, feigned shock at Donald's most reasonable declaration that any woman having an abortion deserved to be punished. What a stupid thing to say. Okay, you might think it, but... What a stupid thing to say. Just wait till you're elected and then do it. 
because we all know abortion is a serious sin against the dear baby Jesus, whom I love. Prince Donald could consult the U.S. arms great ally and co-lover of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi Arabia, about public beheadings or stonings of such lascivious sinners. Because we all know that for those who believe religiously in the right to life, the right to life ceases at birth. From birth to finally. A very, very difficult quiz. Spot the difference. Evil unions and their anti-Trublawazi supporters claim that if they break the law, the law should deal with them. But the government says we must have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission and anti-union specific laws and bureaucracies. Good banks and their pro-Trublawazi supporters like Malcolm and economic guru Scuttlebem or Lashson claim that if they break the law, the law should deal with them. That we must not have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission. That the last thing we need is specific laws and bureaucracies for the good, good banks. Tough one, listener, but spot the difference. Good afternoon. And thanks to... Mr. Kevin Healy. In recent weeks, historian and author Brian McKinlay has spoken about the uprising of the Irish people against the colonial power Britain over centuries, culminating in the 1916 Easter Rising. Today, the impact on events in Australia and further afield. Can over the last month, we've had two programs looking at the events in Ireland and Many of our listeners will have read quite a substantial amount in the newspapers and on the media too about Ireland and the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising. The event, by the way, occurred in April and we're within a few days of the actual 100th anniversary, though appropriately the Irish, as you know, celebrated it on Easter this year because the Easter Rising could hardly be celebrated any other time. But the Irish events of 1916 were, as it were, the prelude to dramatic events that would change, literally change the world, change Australia, change everyone. Because in 1914, when the great powers embarked on World War I, nobody had any idea what a great industrial war would be like. Europe had had 99 years of peace. There hadn't been a, a Europe-wide war. There had been some, some smaller and not too small wars, like the Franco-Prussian War in, 19, in 1870, and wars with Turkey and the Crimea War. But a war that embraced all of Europe was unknown. And it was actually the, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in 1815 that marked the end of the last great European war. So there were 99 years of peace until 1914. But in that time, industrial civilization, if we can call it that, had changed the world. Uh, the railway, the telephone, the telegraph, the radio, things like chlorine gas used to purify water, barbed wire used by farmers, the aeroplane, great ships, not sailing ships of the 1850s, 1800s, but great metal warships that all the great powers built at vast cost 
one might say. But by 1914, all these products of a century of industries were assembled for war. Barbed wire and gas could be terrible weapons of war, along with uh, new types of guns. The machine gun, which could kill hundreds of men in a few minutes, replaced the single rifle, which was common in Napoleon's time. All of these events had taken place, and yet many people failed to see how different a great war would be. That wasn't always the case. A minor Russian politician and an elderly man and a conservative called Dernavo wrote in 1914, early in the year, what he called the Dernavo Memorandum. He sent it to the Tsar and other leading Russian figures, including the politicians of the day. Dernavo had himself been um, a cabinet minister in one of the Tsar's governments. He said, look, two things. Russia can't win a war against a great industrial power like Germany. Russia was just turning from a basically agricultural nation into a military and industrial power, but nowhere like Germany. That was his first warning. The defeat of the Russian army will lead to revolution at home. Because if you conscript millions of men into the army, you disrupt the economy totally, especially the rural economy. There will be food shortages, and eventually all of these things will come together to create a revolution. He was absolutely right. It was almost a prophecy in which he saw the future. Oddly enough, he died a year later. Uh, he was quite an elderly man, and uh, he never lived to see his prophecies come true. He also made the statement, which turned out to be absolutely right, that no nation anymore could win a great industrial war. Even if you won, in inverted commas, as Britain and France did in 1918, your economy would be so ruined by the war and the cost would be so immense that you would never really regain the power you had beforehand. And 1918 marked the decline in, in nations like Britain and France, even though at great cost and, and great loss of life they'd won the war. Australia was a nation of only 5 million, yet we lost 60,000 young men in the, the First World War, and a quarter of a million were wounded either significantly or suffered minor wounds, and this on a country of only 5 million, about the population of Victoria today. Imagine if in the next four years, 60,000 young Victorian men were to be killed, 15,000 a year, we'll say. Imagine the effect on our society. And this had begun to happen right from the beginning of the war. At the first touch of the war in 1914, there was a kind of hysterical enthusiasm about patriotism and defending Britain and the motherland. poem written here by a young student who died in Gallipoli, by the way, had a famous line or two in it, and he said, the bugle calls of England are sounding across the sea. They have sounded for thousands of years. Oh, England, oh, England, how could I stay? Now, many people thought the motherland, England, was in danger and joined up. Some soldiers in 1914 actually worried that by the time they got to Europe, the war would be over. 
the Kaiser in 1914 said to some German troops at the beginning of the war departing from Berlin you'll be home by Christmas this wasn't as silly as it sounds now because some European wars in the past had been pretty brief the Franco-Prussian war only lasted for 10 weeks and the Germans were in Paris and the French emperor was overthrown and the third republic was proclaimed all in that 10 weeks time but no one knew what would happen would be a terrible stalemate in the Western Front and that the great powers would slog it out, losing millions of men and impoverish themselves and creating nearly famine at home because the British blockaded the German coast, the Germans used their submarines on the Atlantic and the food and the supplies that came from, the, from America and Australia and elsewhere didn't reach Europe in the same way. So there was famine, and nowhere worse than Russia, where the economy, as Dernavod predicted, collapsed. Three million Russians were killed in the first two years of the war. And in the end, if you've seen the film Dr. Zhivago, you'll realise that the moment came when the Russian soldiers simply refused to follow their orders and go into battle and lose their lives fruitlessly. And that was the beginning, of course, of revolution. When the army mutinies, the government is swept away. It's a simple fact of life. And in this case, Russia, that began in 1916. Now, I'm looking at 1916, of course, in Australia, but these events in Europe had a profound effect on Australian opinion. And by 1916, there had grown up a very articulate and determined anti-war movement in Australia. A remarkable thing, because the Australian government, a Labor government led by Billy Hughes, Fisher, the Prime Minister, elected in 1914. Labor had a majority in both houses. Fisher, health collapsed. He had an early onset of Alzheimer's, we know now, and he was also terribly unhappy about the war. Fisher had never really supported it, whereas Hughes, the Deputy Prime Minister, who became Prime Minister in 1916, Hughes was a warmonger of the worst kind. Hughes was probably, without doubt, the worst man ever to be Prime Minister of Australia. He was a liar. He was a schemer. He was a scoundrel on every level, assisted ably by a, a young newspaper correspondent, Keith Murdoch, the father of Rupert, no less, with all of Rupert's skills, I might say, and the Murdoch empire was a product of of Keith, the father, as much as Rupert, the son. Like father, like son, Keith Murdoch, the father, became Hughes' press secretary, and they were made for each other. They created the legend of what they called the little digger. That was Hughes, with a slouch hat, though he never went anywhere near the battlefront. Hughes, nevertheless, was a clever, manipulating politician of the crudest, most vicious sort. And he went to Britain in 1916, where he was converted to the idea that the British losses on the Western Front, they'd lost three-quarters of a million men on one battlefield on the Somme. Uh, The British losses were so enormous that Australia should help by conscripting all men between the ages of 18 and 45. 
this extraordinary plan would have wiped out almost a whole generation of Australian men who would have gone to their deaths needlessly in the trenches of the Western Front. But Hughes came home prepared to sell that to the Australian people and the Labor movement. Well, to its credit, the Labor movement wasn't having any of that. Hughes was forced... He would have done it without asking anybody, but he was forced to a referendum by the rest of the Labor movement, which didn't, apart from a few supporters, Hughes didn't have widespread support. And the Labor movement took up the battle, and Hughes, Prime Minister, and half a dozen of his ministers took up the conscription issue, supporting it, backed by the Conservatives, by the Conservative press, by all the patriots of of the period. So you had a remarkable moment when a Labor Prime Minister, and he was that, led the Conservatives in the interests of conscription. On the whole, the rest of the Labor movement, the trade unions, and the Irish population, who had now been shocked by the events in Ireland, took up the no conscription campaign. And out of this, there emerged an equally remarkable figure, the Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne, Dr Mannix, then quite a young man. Mannix had come from Ireland in 1913 and had become Archbishop of Melbourne in 1915. He was Irish and he was shocked by the brutal repression of the British in Ireland after the Easter Rising. He called the war a sordid trade war as good a description as you'd have got from Lenin. And Dr Mannix took up the cudgels and the conscription referendum in September of 1916 was an epic battle. Years later, people would say that they had never known such bitterness, such fury among the population, because it was literally a matter of life and death. If you were a man in that age group and were opposed to the war, you were faced with the prospect of being conscripted and jailed if you didn't enlist. The conscription battle was of great intensity, and uh, I don't think there was a place in Australia where it wasn't argued out with great vigour. Interestingly, Australia led the world at this moment in its um, turning against the war. And in September, to everyone's astonishment, really, Hughes lost, and there was a no majority. There was a majority for no in Queensland, New South Wales, and South Australia, and a very narrow result in Victoria and Tasmania. Hughes was, therefore, denied conscription. Uh, He immediately was expelled by the Labor Party, or, in fact, he left the Labor Party on the, a few days after the referendum, and immediately went over to the Conservatives, taking a half a dozen Labor members, which gave the Conservatives a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. And Hughes now formed what he called the Win the War Government, but it was actually a Conservative government led by a handful of Labor traitors. My elderly grandmother and grandfather who were involved in the Labour movement in Geelong at the time of the conscription referendums. My grandmother lived to a great age, to her 90s, and had a great memory of these events. She never, in the rest of her life, in my hearing, never spoke of Hughes when he was referred to as just Billy Hughes. She called him Hughes the Rat. And um, Geelong, like everywhere else, was the scene of a violent 
conscription referendum. The federal member for Corio, a man called Ozan, had been the only member of the federal parliament who'd enlisted in the war and gone to fight in France. Yet he was against conscription. He was injured and was sent home. Hughes accused Ozan of desertion from the army in London. Terrible accusation that had no ground in fact. And poor old Ozan did lose Corio. Uh, though there was a majority for no in Geelong, as in many other places, Australian society was torn apart by the events of 1916. Hughes went on to lead the Conservatives and in early 1917 held an election. Now, this was before Gallup polls and nobody knew what the public was thinking. And many people thought, well, people have voted against conscription, they'll vote Hughes out. But surprisingly, Hughes and the Conservatives won. The Labor Party was deeply divided. Many people who were opposed to conscription still felt they had to support the war. So Hughes then became Prime Minister in his own right. And in the following year, 1917, he decided to have a second conscription referendum, which was every bit as bitter as the first. And this one was defeated with a bigger majority, which was a surprise. Victoria this time voted with a majority of votes for no. And um, all of these events were uh, marked the uh, terrible division in Australian society. The Irish community voted overwhelmingly against the war, led on both occasions by Dr Mannix. And this led to a tremendous sectarian attitude from many people who supported the war. And that became a real feature of Australian society for a couple of generations. While these events were occurring in Australia, in Europe, 1916 had seen terrible food shortages and hardships for the civilian population, as well as the terrible death roll on the Western Front. Australia, of course, had withdrawn its troops, retreated from Gallipoli. But Australians, many of them, would die. Most of the 60,000 deaths would be on the Western Front in France. By the end of 1916, everywhere in Europe, there was a feeling that the war had no way of being concluded. The great powers who'd argued about Serbia and about Belgium at the beginning of the war, had forgotten all that. There seemed no way the Great War would end except the complete collapse of one side of the, of the conflict. Oddly enough, it was the prophecy of Dernavo in Russia in 1914 which came true before anything else. By the end of 1916... Just after the defeat of the first conscription referendum here, Russia was on the verge of famine. And the winter of 1916, Russian winters are famously terrible in their intensity. The winter of 1916 and the first weeks of 1917 saw cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg virtually famine-stricken. In March, around International Women's Day, oddly enough, 
Women demonstrated in St Petersburg despite the ferocity of the Tsar's police against demonstrators, uh, what were called the bread riots. Women demonstrated in, in fact that bread had become almost unobtainable and many families were starving. These bread riots within a few days turned into an uprising. People stormed the bakeries and when the police fired on them, they stormed the police stations, mostly women. An amazing event. It spread quickly to other Russian cities, in Moscow particularly, and suddenly the Tsar's regime was faced with the loss of the capital, St. Petersburg, to a fairly unorganised group, but a very large group, mostly women. When the Tsarist police and the Cossacks the notorious Cossacks who would always be used against demonstrators by the Tsar refused to fire on the crowds of women, the regime collapsed. And I'll look at that in a fortnight's time. Suddenly the Tsar was gone. The 300 years of the Romanov family rule in Russia came to an end in a matter of days. And the world was shaken by this extraordinary news. Because Tsarist Russia, a great power, was also the most absolute monarchy. The Tsar didn't believe in any kind of parliament or consultative process, although in the last years of his rule, a, a large revolutionary movement based on several groups and parties, the Communist Party was just one of them, there were socialists and peasant groups were all pressing for fundamental change in Russia. And if the Tsar hadn't been so stupid, and he was stupid, as was his wife, uh, and those around him so determined to not change anything, then history might have been very different. But you were faced with a rising revolutionary movement and an absolutely obstinate government that would make no changes of any kind, faced, of course, with famine. Over two million Russian soldiers had died, many of them sons of peasant families. So the rural economy was in ruins. The railways had collapsed with the military use of such. At the end of 1916, Russia was on the verge of revolution. Famously in St. Petersburg, a group of aristocrats set out to murder a man called Rasputin, a mad monk, as people called him, who exercised a great power over the Tsarina because the heir to the throne, an unfortunate little boy, had been born with hemophilia, a common condition among some of Queen Victoria's descendants, and he was one of them. And this poor lad from childhood was faced with the prospect of death from something like a minor cut and the Tsarina, as would all mothers, and the Tsar too, became obsessed with the concern for their little son. They had five daughters and only one boy, and he was heir to the throne. But it was obvious that he could never take the throne. And uh, Rasputin appeared. He had some odd powers. He was a hypnotist, and he would come when the child had these bleeding incidents and would touch the child and would hypnotise him and it would end. Nobody quite knows how he used this power. And the Tsarina became absolutely linked to him. Uh, people said, oh, 
he'd become her mistress. Well, that was malicious gossip, but it wasn't true. She wasn't in any way sexually linked to Rasputin. But he exerted tremendous power at the court, and everyone knew it, and it became a scandal. And some of the aristocracy got together and murdered him in St. Petersburg at a party they had invited him to. And they poisoned him, and then they stabbed him, and then they threw him in the river for good measure in the middle of winter. And this scandal shook the royal family to its foundations uh, and was perhaps the final sign of the coming collapse of the Russian monarchy. And so 1916 ended with Russia on the verge of revolution, with Australia traumatised by the conscription referendum, with Billy Hughes now leading a conservative government, and the whole of the Labor movement, the whole of the broad left in Australia, in bitter conflict with Hughes and his government, who a few years earlier had been a Labor Prime Minister, by the way, and so 1916 marked a year of great internal conflict around the world as the war seemed to have no possibility of ending. No one could see that the next great event which would change the whole course of the war would be the revolution in Russia. Two other aspects that I have looked at earlier that I might mention today. The Easter Rising in Dublin in 1916 was suppressed by the British with great ferocity. A dozen of the Irish leaders who were not killed were captured. The Rising only lasted the week. The men were jailed, tried by military court, I might say. They were executed by the British uh, by firing squad in Dublin. This shocked Irish opinion and world opinion. About 90 women took part in the Easter Rising. Some of them took a very prominent part. And the new Irish constitution, by the way, was the first modern constitution to grant, not just grant women the vote in the constitution, but to grant equal rights in every way to women, a remarkable development for 1916. None of the women who took part were executed, but all of them were jailed, some of them for a year or so, and later were pardoned. But in Ireland, the British ferocity turned Irish opinion very much in favour of the rebels. For instance, in 1917, a year after, when news of the Russian Revolution reached the Irish and the overthrow of the Tsar, there was great rejoicing in Ireland because it was seen that Russia was now moving along a similar path to Ireland. And the conflict in Ireland never really ceased. Those who had survived the Irish soldiers and others who had survived uh, the Easter Rising and gone into hiding took up what we now see as guerrilla warfare led by a remarkable Irish leader called Michael Collins. Collins was in many ways the inventor, if I can use that word, of the modern idea of guerrilla warfare and especially urban guerrilla warfare. And from 1916 onwards, this spread across Ireland and the British, of course, then responded by sending more and more troops to Ireland. So Ireland was now an occupied country. In 1918, when the First World War ended, the Tories in Britain, in a clever stunt, held an early election 
and won. And so Britain had voted for a Conservative government. Uh, in Ireland, which was part of Britain, the Irish voted too. But, well, every seat in what's today the Irish Republic voted for Irish nationalist members, about 50 in all. And they decided, having been elected to the House of Commons in London, that they would never take their seats in Britain, in the British Parliament again. They met in Dublin and proclaimed themselves the Parliament of the Irish Republic. Well, they very soon had to go into hiding because the British police set out to arrest them. But they kept in action, led by Michael Collins and several other men, they became, in effect, a kind of Irish provisional government. From 1918 to 1922, the Irish conflict raged uh, across Ireland and uh, that eventually the British realised that they simply couldn't win and by 1922 they were prepared for a treaty which set up Ireland as what was called a free state. The King of England, George V, an iron conservative by the way, couldn't bear the word republic, refused to sign the Act of Parliament if it had the word of Parliament, uh, republic in it. And so they came up with a meaningless word. It was called the Irish Free State era. And from 1922 to after the Second World War, Ireland was still called that. But then suddenly the Irish decided they had enough of that and um, they simply proclaimed Ireland a republic, which of course is the modern term. I also looked at the, and I will look in a fortnight in more detail, at the collapse of the Tsarist regime, which really shook the world. Tragically, though the Tsar probably deserved punishment for all his past crimes, his wife and their family of daughters and his little son were all in 1918 killed. They'd been taken prisoner and sent to a town in Siberia and eventually there, the local revolutionary committee, fearing that they would be liberated by what were called the whites, the anti-revolutionary movement in Russia, uh, executed them all. This again was seen as an immense event. There had been plans, by the way, to send them to Britain via Sweden, and that would have worked. They would have been saved in Britain. But the King of England was now so frightened of the rising tide of left-wing opinion in Britain that he was the cousin of the Tsar, by the way, but that didn't stop George V from stopping the plan to give the Tsar and his family asylum in Britain after, after the war. History is so interesting, isn't it? That's historian and author Brian McKinlay. And as he said in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be hearing about the Russian Revolution. You are listening to 3CR. If People Powered Radio exhibition is on now, get along to Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and enjoy this exciting collaboration. The exhibition features recordings, technological hardware, photos, ephemera and newly commissioned artworks by local artists which frame and interpret the station's history of radical broadcasting. A series of live broadcasts are happening every Friday in April direct from the exhibition space 
talking sovereignty, troublemaking and music. Come and explore the politics of broadcasting, the experience of community and the station's radical history with Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and Art Space. 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, open Tuesdays to Saturdays from 11am. Exhibition finishes April 23rd. For more information, visit 3cr.org.au. Here in Australia, when farmers and their families are struggling due to failed harvests and debt, unable to feed their families, they appeal to politicians for help to see them through the bad times. But in the Philippines, it's different. When drought-stricken farmers, who normally only eke out a subsistence lifestyle, lost even that, they barricaded the local highway to dramatise their demands and to draw national attention to the harsh realities of the country's rural areas, this time in Mindanao. The reaction from the state? The government turned a deaf ear and brought in the police. The result? Three dead and over 100 injured in what is now known as the Kitapawan Massacre. This morning I spoke with Peter Murphy from the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Peter, this tragedy on the 1st of April is but a repeat. I'll just read one report. The scenario sounds familiar. It happened again before several times. Hunger turned to fear. A demand met with death. The smell of blood running through the scorched and dusty ground spoke of one thing violence. Can you talk about those earlier protests by hungry and poor farmers? I think the most outstanding case was called the Mendiola Massacre, which involved a national rally of farmers soon after the overthrow of Marcos, so within one year. It was in January 1987. It was a big rally in front of the presidential palace. The military command was to open fire, so... I'm not sure of the exact number now, but something like 16 people were killed outright and many more were wounded. And uh, it was a turning point for the Corazon Aquino presidency, in fact, when that happened. That's a long time ago for, for many people now, but it's, it's some, t- some ways it just seems like yesterday. In more recent times in uh, Mindanao, where the Kitapawan massacre occurred, the uh, impact of typhoons and, and natural disasters has often triggered terrible confrontations, mainly because in the aftermath uh, the, there is a, a tragic sort of underperformance of government in providing relief. And uh, the local people get organised and start demanding more and more and then either a leader is assassinated or there's a smashing up of a, a rally. And so it's, it's actually terribly familiar in this sort of situation. Then there's another type of violence happening in Mindanao related to the intervention of mining companies and logging companies, but in this period mainly mining companies, into lands which have been more or less neglected by the government forever but uh, are now enticing for their mineral deposits. The indigenous people who have a strong culture, their own language, they're not materially well off but they, they are farmers get organised and resist the exploration company coming in 
that scenario is, has led to many deaths in the last five years. I'm not sure of the exact number, but it would be well over 60 people have been assassinated. That is in, in ones, twos and threes because they're leaders of community organisations who are objecting to development, uh, alleged development proposals, which are mainly mines. And there's a lot of military stationed all over Mindanao and especially in the eastern part of Mindanao where Kitapawan is on the uh, western edge of that, that region. You know, the people are very, very careful not to get into a situation which can go completely crazy like what happened on April 1. They, they are alert to the problem, the threat of violence from the state and they try to avoid it, of course, because they're civilians trying to survive and, and to assert their basic rights. What happened at Kitapawan on April 1 uh, fits a pattern, a, a dreadful, tragic pattern. I suppose worse, this time around, um, there's uh, you know, been, as far as I can tell, no statement from the President of the Philippines about what happened at all. It's, it's, it's a very odd situation. What did actually happen on that day? About... 10 to 10.30 in the morning on April 1, the police had ordered a, a very large gathering of farming people to disperse. They had been assembled, this was the third day in which they had been assembled, to call for the governor of the province to release rice to enable them to you know, feed themselves. The scenario was that because of the El Nino, there had been no rain since around uh, October last year, September or October last year, and by December it was apparent that the rice crop would fail, which it did. And uh, the uh, community was promised substantial food aid if that happened, and then it wasn't uh, delivered. So they assembled and uh, started to demand the uh, uh, release of the stocks of rice it was, in, in fact, 15,000 sacks of rice they were asking for, and there were five to 6,000 people assembled. So you, you're looking at a really big event. And uh, it was well organised uh, in the sense that uh, the people had their community leaders, that there was a negotiating team, there was a lot of dialogue going on with the governor's office, um, but there was a refusal by the governor to live up to her... Uh, undertaking previously given about the 15,000 sacks of rice. In the end, uh, she had offered one kilo of rice per month per person, which is like one day's food. So I don't know what, where she thought the other 29 or 30 days of food would come from for people. Is it also true, Peter, that that rice was donated by private people and private groups rather than government? I'm not aware of the source. I'm pretty sure we're talking about a government program. You know, after the typhoons we, we, we've we witnessed in the last couple of years, yeah, the vast impact that they've had, there has been pressure on the Philippines government to be more prepared and to pre-position materials for these sorts of calamities. could be that some of this rice was donated, but I think it's a government program, and it was the governor's role to manage it. Well, the police were there, of course, because that was such a large gathering, but... Uh, and rather than just dealing with the traffic and the good order of the situation, the police, it's hard for Australians to get this, but uh, the police uh, wear military fatigues most of the time and uh, they're armed with M16 uh, long uh, weapons. And uh, in this case, they attacked the rally of people 
broke down their uh, first few lines of the rally with uh, truncheons and uh, shields and then threw stones at the people. Um, and when people threw the stones back, they gave the order to open fire. So it was a very confusing report on April 1, but the picture we have at the moment after a more thorough fact-finding mission on April 4 to 6 is that there were two people shot dead and at least 37 wounded. There were still people unaccounted for on, March, on April 6, as well as that the police arrested 45 men and 27 women and uh, held them for several days. And most of the people fled towards the uh, Methodist church called the Spotswood Methodist Centre and uh, tried to take shelter in their compound. And the compound was then surrounded by about 200 military and police and uh, no one was allowed in or out, especially people trying to bring medical assistance and uh, food and, and just simply to find out what was going on. So it was like a siege uh, of the United Methodist Church compound there in Kitapawan. That was a bit of an extra dimension normally in, the, in past experiences, that type of thing, uh, like sustained repression and occupation of an area by the military hadn't been a feature. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a big shockwave. In the Kitapawan area, the farming communities really, you know, it's got cooperatives, it's uh, well organised, and uh, they would have done their very best to provide for this period of uh, drought and famine, but clearly their resources had run out, and that's why they were calling on the government to help. It's one of those uh, experiences, again, where it, it's so apparent that the uh, conflict, the, the lines of conflict within Philippine society are, are very sharp. There's, there's a huge gap between a powerful elite and uh, a huge you know, population who have very, very few material resources. And the police were awarded medals for their efforts? Yeah. It's, it's a bit hard to, to swallow again, but on April the 2nd, I think that... So within a day of this happening... The commanders on that day were given medals, yes. How was it reported in the Philippines? There was a a flurry of condemnations by all of the presidential candidates. So in in that sense, there was a a heightened uh, media focus because it was part of a bigger national uh, political dynamic. But in these cases, usually the the local media and, and the national media will cover it for a very short time and then... It drops away, out of sight. Well, I'm quite sure that the the crisis for the people hasn't ended, the food crisis. No, no, exactly. No, there will be starvation in in that area of Mindanao. And where can the people turn to? Well, they have to rely then on more community-based organisations to provide help. At this stage, I'm not hearing any specific reports, but various church-based and community-based organisations, including especially BIAN, which is a big national network, mobilise food supplies and other aid after the typhoons, and uh, they're capable of, of helping in this situation as well. Are the problem is it that there's not enough seed or that there's GM crops there or it's monoculture. What, what are the main problems, apart from the fact that there's climate change? Well, I think that that is the main problem. The failure of the rains is, is very, very rare in uh, that area. 
the El Nino is, is a you know a regular enough pattern that people are aware of and can prepare for. But I think on top of the changing climate itself, they had a, an unprecedented lack of rain. In fact, because of this long period of no rain, it's like two crops couldn't be grown. So it's um, it's a pretty serious situation. There are other issues all all the time <coughs> for farming people, in in that they. Um, have a problem with people financing them. That is, they, they're always in debt to some middleman or banker or, you know, grain marketer, somebody like that, uh, to hire tractors or to get a loan to, to hire um, bullocks or to um, pay for the seed or the fertiliser. There's lots of movements among the people to find organic forms of fertiliser and uh, avoid paying for chemical pesticides and so on. But uh, there's all these cost pressures which are endemic in the Philippines. And there's also, a, you know, even a deeper problem in that people are often just renting the land on which they're farming. Depends on different regions in the country, you know, what the land ownership is like. But a lot of farming people are really landless workers. Land reform is needed. Land reform is still a huge, huge national issue in the Philippines, yes. What happened to the people who were arrested? I haven't heard that they've been released yet. So, you know, I would think that they're still in custody. You mentioned that they, the candidates for presidential elections, which are due next month, condemned the police. Yes. What was the reaction by the police? Well, they haven't, as far as I can tell, again, they haven't issued any major explanation of the event. They did say that they were fired upon first. And that, therefore, you know, that other sort of storyline that uh, really all of these uh, farmers are, are uh, terrorists or communist guerrillas and that they were, you know, a threat to the police and therefore the police were justified in firing. That's a fairly typical story uh, you get in these uh, situations. But, of course, there were no police wounded by gunfire or anything more than a stone. And um, the... Uh, Witnesses there, many witnesses have testified that the firing came from the police. The police, you know, got a search warrant and uh, searched the uh, entire Methodist church compound, allegedly looking for hidden weapons, and, and of course they found none. So that particular justification for what they did has, uh, you know, collapsed completely. But as far as I know, that's the only main statement they've been making. Is it unusual for politicians to criticise the police in this way? Yes, I think this is an uh, unusual situation. You know, there may, you know, and other, other really outrageous uh, events, there may be people in Congress who speak out, but to have people who want to be the president speak out against the security forces is unusual. Yes. Well, as I said, the elections are scheduled for next month. Yes, it's on May 9. It's a, a Monday. I think they. So the the election, the temperature is is heating up. Yes, we're, we're and what close. are the candidates like? Oh well, I think you could say the candidates are um, predictably from the elite, all of them. There's uh, a range, though, of experiences there. So um, because of the time, you know, where here we are in uh, 2016, so people who are quite young uh, in the anti-Marcos struggle, young adults are now in this generation of senior political figures and so uh, there's a little bit more 
uh, alertness among some of the candidates, uh, particularly uh, one called Duterte, who's from Davao City, and uh, another one called Binai, who is a former mayor of Makati. You know, they're more alert to the, the problems of poor people, workers and farmers. However, they're really part of the establishment as well. There's another candidate called uh, Ma Rojas, who would, you would identify as a more traditional, you know, wealthy, oligarchic sort of uh, representative. And there's a populist uh, candidate called Grace Poe, whose father was uh, a presidential candidate in 2004, and, um, but he died in the campaign. And he was a movie star. So we've had the movie star president before as well. The most popular one, though, the one leading the pack is uh, Duterte, Rudy Duterte at the moment. He's a, the polling is showing him at 27%, quite a bit in front of Grace Poe. Uh, Rojas is trailing that sort of leading pack. There's one other element in the election, though, because uh, the son of uh, Ferdinand Marcos, called Bong Bong Marcos, is running for vice president. He's leading the field in terms of the polling on who's the most popular vice president. That's caused its own particular dynamic in that uh, there's been rallies uh, held to oppose the election of uh, Bong Bong Marcos as vice president. And it does show you, I think, uh, how the real lesson of the Marcos dictatorship as a tragedy for the Philippines hasn't been learned uh, in the establishment that this is even happening. And Duarte is one of two who have publicly opposed the visiting forces agreement which allows the entry of US troops into the country. Yes, Rudy Duterte is one of those people who is critical of that type of thing. As I said, because of their experience in the Marcos struggle, they're more critical and more alert you know, to some of these issues than the, the more traditional political figures. But uh, it's something that people could, you know, in the progressive side of the politics in the Philippines can push for and maybe get some more results from somebody like Duterte if he, if he becomes the president. However, um, you know, Duterte is, you know, he's got his own problems in, the, in that in the Davao area where he's the mayor, he's been ruthless in, in having police or some death squads eliminate uh, alleged drug dealers and uh, gangsters. So he, he's pretty uh, economical with justice himself and uh, it's quite a scary aspect really of his candidacy. On the other hand in Davao he's done quite a bit to keep out the government, the, the Manila government's death squads. So assassinations of uh, grassroots leaders are not very common although they have happened they're not very common in his area. He's been far more sort of agile in political processes to include more of the poor people within the operations of his you know, city government. So, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses uh, definitely with him. I think uh, Grace Poe is another one who, who uh, because of her uh, origins, is uh, also open to reconsider the amazing military build-up of US forces taking place in the Philippines now. And she would be more open to the needs of the poor people. Although we've had plenty of presidents like this before, in fact, they all use this language, but in fact, very little has been delivered. So, you know, from my point of view, it's more of the same, whoever gets elected, 
and uh, it's it's a bit scary if uh, Bongbong Marcos gets elected because in, in case the president uh, gets ill, gets killed, whatever, then he he's the president, which is like a, a nightmare. The progressive candidates are really in a, a section of the elections called party list, which is a national, a nationwide uh, electorate and elected on proportional terms. The left and progressive groups around farmers and workers, teachers, jeepney drivers, migrant workers, women, youth, they can get uh, you know, millions of votes added together. And uh, they have already got a presence in the Congress and it can grow through this particular part of the elections. And so they, they can give some direction you know, to the national political debate in the Congress, as well as the mass rallies and movements outside of the Congress. And their particular hope is that, depending on how strongly they get a vote and who does get elected president, that uh, there would be the release of about 525 political prisoners and that there would be a genuine reopening of peace talks between the government and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. These measures would really be very positive in reducing the levels of violence and state violence in the country and open up the chance for some real positive reforms in economic relations. So that's the positive part of the, the vision for this uh, elections which are coming up on May 9. Finally, Peter, the record of the outgoing president. I don't know what history will say about um, Noi Noi Aquino. The people started making jokes about him after about a year of his presidency and he, he became a, a noi noi, a keen, <laughs> and all sorts of other jokes. But uh, he's actually extremely flat. You know, there's, he's, he's, he's a very dull person in his actual style and he seems to have just basically tried to ignore all of these problems of landlessness, falling incomes, violence, in his own family business, they have this Hacienda Luisita property in central Luzon at Talak. And uh, there's been you know, quite a lot of violence, killing of farmers and uh, sugar workers there who are campaigning for the distribution of land under the land reform program. And this is a, this is a, a particular case where the, the Supreme Court has ordered the distribution of the land, but it's still not distributed. Here you have the president against the Supreme Court and against the farmers. And it sort of, I think it clearly uh, expresses the reality of the presidency of uh, Noinoi Aquino. Again, looking back to the Marcos time, his uh, father was assassinated by Marcos and his mother led the mass movement that in electoral terms broke through and, and got rid of the Marcos dictatorship. So there's a heroic side to both the parents and his mother released all political prisoners in 1986 and so on. And yet, you know, he, he's uh, sort of been doing the opposite. So it's like, you know, erasing the real potential out of the uh, anti-Marcos movement. Yeah, so I think history will look particularly unfavourably on, on his term. And that was Peter Murphy, who's a, a trade union and human rights activist from Sydney. <laughs> Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. 
Support 3CR. Last week, two members of New Caledonia NGO Stop OGM Pacific were in Melbourne to meet with anti-GM activists here and further the network to inform the public about the risks of GMOs in food, agriculture and the environment. Frederick Gerin and Claire Chauvet came into the studio and I asked them about the qualifications they bring to the group in their quest to stop GMOs in the Pacific. I'm a consultant in environment. I've been yeah, learning this area and I'm working as a consultant for water safety, water security, uh, mainly in that domain. I am interested in general in everything that's around ecology and environment. So that's why I'm very aware about food security problem and sustainable agriculture and things like that. Frederic? Teach organic agriculture. I'm also consultant and uh, I organize uh, training session, composting and traditional farming and, uh, and agriculture uh, without inputs, just natural agriculture. When we talk about keeping GM food out of the Pacific, let's talk about the indigenous foods that are in the Pacific. What are the traditional heritage foods of the Pacific? Are they different in different areas of the Pacific or are there foods that are common to a lot of the people in the Pacific? Most of the crops are common to all the Pacific Islands, but some are more important in the culture in the different islands. For example, the main important food in, in New Caledonia is yam. In Polynesia, it's more about uh, taro. Taro is very uh, sacred food. But everybody shares the same kind of plants like uh, yam, taro, cassava. But also it's very important, the banana and, uh, and the, um, the coconut. So you have that kind of crops everywhere in the Pacific. It's not only food, it's also something related to the ancestors. So if you touch that kind of plants, you also touch all the generation before. It's very important for them. Are there GM foods in the Pacific now? A lot of food are imported from everywhere, from USA, from Australia, from Asia. There is big problem. There is about 25 independent country in Pacific Islands, and there is no GM regulation. People don't know if the food they import are GM or not. We know food are GM. Politics is difficult. They don't really want to know. But the population, they have no idea if food they eat are GM or not. And about the seeds... Um, we are very worried because it's uh, common in all Pacific Islands country. There is massive importation of seeds. They lose their traditional seeds. And seeds are imported from Asia. And there is a big problem in Pacific Islands country. There is Hawaii, the U.S. state. And Hawaii is the big GM laboratory of the world. They made more than 6,000 GM trails. In Hawaii, everything is GM, and there is the case of papaya. More than 90% of uh, Hawaiian papaya are GM, and Hawaii exports fruits and seeds. 
everywhere. And we are quite sure all GM papaya contaminated the Pacific Islands. And, but there is no visibility. That's what we do with our uh, NGO. Of course, the problem is that we don't know if GMOs are safe for the health. So uh, a lot of people, they just would like to avoid uh, eating GMOs because they think it's not uh, secured. But it's difficult to have uh, arguments for that because, you know, uh, the science is divided and the pro-GMO push to say, yeah, it's okay, you you don't have to care, it's no problem with eating GMO. So for the Pacific Islands, I, I think the, the main problem is not that one, is maybe more preserving the traditional agriculture and also that the people, they, they continue to be able to grow crops year after year and do not depend from big companies and pay the patents that are linked to GMOs and also have an agriculture that do not need pesticides because, you know, all these islands are very small and if you start importing that kind of seeds, then you have to import also pesticides. And then the people, they, they start to buy everything. They need a lot of money to be able to grow their own food and and then you lose the food sovereignty and security in those countries. And that's the main point, I think, the, the most important thing. How do people farming sustainably in the, the Pacific, how do they control pests without pe- pesticides, herbicides? Oh, there is uh, natural methods. There is uh, 12,000 years of agriculture. If we are alive today, it's because our ancestor was able to grow and to find solutions. There is many solutions, but you can make uh, natural pesticides with plants, tobacco, chili, garlic, and uh, traditional methods, and they are very useful. You, the importance of seeds, because the seeds have a memory, and if you use seeds who grow during thousands of years, they know everything. They know dry period, they know wet period, they adapt to resist everything. The first thing to have no problem when you practice agriculture is the choice of the seeds. Yeah, and also the traditional method in in the Pacific Islands, it's uh, agroforestry. So the people, they grow all the crops, all together, so you grow the yam with the banana, with uh, the trees, so that if you have all that biodiversity, then you don't have much uh, attack from you know pests and insects. So I think this uh, model is uh, uh, something very old that the people they use in, in Pacific Islands, and it's something now that people rediscover also. Uh, agroforestry is uh, really a good system to just avoid uh, using pesticide and uh, all that things. Can you talk a bit about your group to stop GMOs or to have labelling? When did the group start and what have you been doing? We start six or five years ago because we noticed that uh, in New Caledonia we had a lot of food coming from uh, US and there was no labelling of the GMO. So we said, oh, maybe there is a problem and there is no regulation. We have to have a look uh, about that. So we start with that. And as the government, the local government, uh, do we have a regulation here in uh, in New Caledonia? Because, as you know, New Caledonia is uh, 
connected to France. We are a French territory. So we supposed at the beginning that the laws that are enforced in Europe and in France were applied in New Caledonia, but it's not the case. So we discovered that. And after that, we start to just campaign to convince the people that it could be very important to regulate the food, but also the seeds to, to avoid the contamination or just to know the situation. But this is the first point. And we had to make a lot of education because the people, they didn't knew about GMOs. So it was uh, the first step. And after that, when we discovered that uh, it was not only in New Caledonia, but in all the other Pacific Islands, that there were no regulation, then we decided to try to federate and make a network to be able to all go together for regulation. This is the key education, so that the people, they know the difference between open pollinated seeds, hybrid seeds and GMOs. This is the first thing because the people, they don't know the difference. For them, it's natural that when you have a seed, you put it in the soil and it grows, but they, they don't know about all these new technologies, so... This is the first point. How do you tell the difference in the seeds? Basically, if it's imported, you don't know. That's why you have to inform farmers, but also the politics, so so that they can change the law and uh, uh, impose a kind of control at the frontier when the, the seeds are coming in. Yeah. But if people are saving their own seeds, why would they buy seeds from overseas? In the 60s, there was like an hybrid revolution. Government has give for free. Use this seed, you will have better crops and things like that. In a few decades, they lose all their traditional seeds. Yeah, they receive hybrids. And it's the same shame in all Pacific Islands countries. And now it's the same with GMOs. And also the last two years in Vanuatu and in Fiji this year, there have been big cyclones. So it was Pam in Vanuatu and Winston in Fiji this year. What happened in that case is that there are big NGO or country that are coming to help the country to recover because a lot is, is destroyed in the agriculture. So they come and bring the seed with them. What we have seen in Vanuatu after Pam cyclone is that the... New Caledonian government or Australian government, they come and just bring the seed and say, yeah, you will have fast crop and you will recover. But then the people, they don't know what kind of seeds it is. And that's one way to bring new technology, you know, in those countries. What about processed food coming in that's GMO? Not just seeds, but packaged food, processed food from other countries. How prevalent is that without labelling? In New Caledonia, uh, we have 70% of the food is imported. Only 30% of the food is uh, produced locally. It's very few. You can find uh, food coming from yeah, USA and Asia a lot, and also Australia and New Zealand. So, for example, in New Caledonia, you can find canola oil coming from Australia. So it might be GM, but it's not uh, written on the labeling. And a lot also... Of, uh, dairy product coming from New Zealand, 
you know, some are feed with uh, GMO. A lot of them are feed with GMO. So we have that kind of product too. And also a lot of things coming from Asia and and US with maize and soy and, you know, all these additives and transformed food, sugar or things like this. So because it's not mandatory, then it's not written on the sticker. What about labelling worldwide of GMO food? Is it happening in other countries? Oh yeah, in the world there is uh, 65 countries who have uh, GM labelling. All the big uh, countries, uh, China, India, Russia, Indonesia, they have, uh, Australia have food labelling, Japan, except uh, Canada and USA because... Uh, they love GM, apparently. But well, Monsanto is very, very yeah. powerful there, isn't it? And in Europe, yeah, the 29 uh, European countries. And it's not the same labeling in all countries. For example, in Europe, if the sugar is made from GMO, the sugar is labeling, not in Australia. And uh, the same for oil. If you make oil with GMO, in Europe, you have the label on the oil, but not in Australia and New Zealand. It's the same regulation in Australia and New Zealand. Well, what are you asking to be on the labels of food and seeds that come into the Pacific? What would you like to see? Uh, we would like to see this is GMO. Just a label uh, saying if there are GMO ingredients inside the product, then you need to write it on the on the label, like uh, it contains GMO soy or it contains GMO corn or things like that. It's a right, a right for freedom, for consumer, for farmer. All farmers of the world have the right to choose GM or not in case at at the moment, uh, it's different. Uh, you know, humanitarian uh, organization, uh, officially they help people, but if they give them GMO seeds, they don't help them. They won't uh, make dependence. And GMO is just a business. GMO companies just want to control the agriculture market, the agriculture. But in Pacific Islands, it's a right, a right to live and a right for farmers to produce without inputs. What GM companies want, they want all farmers of the world spend money to buy their uh, seeds. Half the world population are farmers. And a few decades ago, it was maybe 90% of the world population traditionally grow. And they know how to grow, but... Pest attack and disease is not a fatality, it's the result of monoculture, of chemical that destroy the fertility of the soil. After the plant have problems, that's normal. First, uh, respect the soil, feed the soil with organic matter, and that's natural cycle. If you destroy uh, the fertility, you'll have problems. It's the same with breeding animal but it's a very important right for pacific farmer to grow traditionally this is tuesday home time on 3cr and you're listening to two members of stop ogm pacific frederick Gerin and claire chevet when you want this ban to be put in would it be put in country by country 
or would it be the whole of the Pacific one ban so that all countries have to agree to this? I think the process is more that every country has its own regulation. But, uh, of course, uh, all those countries, they discuss all together. So if maybe Fiji will have a regulation, then it will be more easy for the other country to enforce a regulation because they will all uh, start to realize that there is a problem and they will talk together to see what they want to do or what they can do. Which country is pushing the most? Is it New Caledonia? Are you hoping to influence the other countries or what, what's happening? Yeah, we move in different countries. We visit uh, different of them, not all of them. What's the people's reaction when you tell them what is happening to their food? Well, they're shocking. They don't realise and, uh, yeah, they're shocking uh, about the season. When we explain what's GMO and uh, they imagine maybe they import and they have GMO in their land, it's uh, horrific for them. But, uh, you know, it's economic uh, relation, cooperation. They are very small country. Economically, they are, uh, it's poor country, but... What we explain them, there is a big interest uh, economic because we talk ecologic, but we have to talk economy maybe to be more uh, credible. But uh, there is a, a big market for organic agriculture. I'm sure many Australian people want to eat uh, organic products from uh, Pacific Islands. But if Pacific Islands are contaminated with GMO, and is the case now in Hawaii, how do you want to produce organic food, organic agriculture, if there is GM contamination? And it's uh, for traditional life for uh, Pacific Islanders, it's a good opportunity to grow organically, better than uh, GMO. Uh, it's small area, uh, what's the interest to grow GMO? Resist disease, but uh, again, we have uh, 12,000 years of agriculture and just 20 years of GMO. And we don't wait uh, GMO to eat, you know, in the past. And, uh, it's just uh, economic uh, uh, monopoly and nothing else. How much of the food produced in the Pacific Islands is still organic without GMOs? We don't know because there is no regulation, so you can't really know what is contaminated or not with GMO. But the, the main problem, I think, in the Pacific Islands about GMO, it's uh, about the papaya. Hawaii has been growing papaya for many years now, GMO papayas, and uh, spread everywhere. So probably the, the main problem is this one, because uh, all these countries are growing papaya, and in Fiji it's uh, for export, so it could be a big problem. So that's the main crop that uh, uh, is challenged with that. But in Hawaii, they also created uh, tropical GM taro, for example, and maybe GM coffee, GM pineapple, things like that. So who knows where they are. So it's coming in through the back door. Yeah. What can you do? What are you doing? Lobbying. Yeah, lobbying. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, information. And we came in Australia for... uh, GM Free Alliance meeting. We are in collaboration. We obtain. We have good results. And uh, in New Caledonia, in uh, 2014, we obtain a GM regulation 
to ban import uh, GM seeds, first point. Uh, next step will be to have a GM labeling and uh, in Vanuatu, in Fiji, near uh, maybe this year or next year, we hope uh, something happens with uh, GM regulation and uh, we collaborate with regional UN agency, big NGO, and uh, we discuss and... Uh, What about New Zealand? What's their stand? New Zealand has a mor moratorium about uh, GMO, so there are no GM crops, but they, they import a lot of GMO to feed the animals. It seems that it's like that. And they have also a lot of uh, GM trials, especially about trees, uh, GM trees, uh, GM pasture also. So the situation is better than Australia for the moment, but uh, the people there... Uh, GM-free uh, New Zealand has to be very careful and very keep aware about the situation because some people, they want to grow GM also in New Zealand. Tell us about the bananas that are being grown here, what the impact of that could be in the Pacific. It's the Queensland University of Technology and uh, a doctor name, uh, named James Dale made research to create new GMO bananas. The idea is to create a banana that is rich in vitamin A. The objective is to feed the African, especially Uganda, with the, the, that, that kind of banana. And what he did is he took some traditional banana from the Pacific. They are called fey banana, and they are naturally very rich in vitamin A. They took the, the gene of this banana and put it in a commercial variety of banana, and they, now they want to grow it in Africa. Basically, that is the project. The thing is that it's a case of biopiracy because they, they took this traditional banana from the Melanesia and Polynesia without asking anybody if it was okay or not. So this is biopiracy. Has it been challenged? Not for now, because the people, they don't know, actually. For the moment, we are starting a campaign about that in New Caledonia. Has it already been sent to Africa or is it no. in process? No, no, it's in process. And that's another way of getting GM into Africa? I think that's the main objective of the project. It's not uh, feeding what it to save the African children. It's just uh, blah, 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 you know. Mm. And uh, the, the only thing they want is to uh, introduce those bananas and then say, oh, now you have GMO, we can bring you some new varieties of cotton and maize and, and you know, all that kind of thing. So, This project is financed by, uh, by the Bill Gates Foundation and they want to save Africa. But I think he has a bad idea because uh, he wants to prepare a green revolution in Africa with GMO food. It's a disaster. And also because uh, if you want to help the African to have more vitamin A, it's just very easy to make a program saying you should grow more moringa leaves, for example, or eat the taro leaves because they are very rich uh, with vitamin A. You don't need to create a GMO banana, you know, it's just completely stupid idea. I think the Bill Gates or the Gates Foundation's got a lot to answer for, hasn't it, around the world? In concert with Monsanto? Oh, yeah, he's a very good friend of Monsanto. I mean, he, they are very linked together. So, What are GM mosquitoes? Different uh, GM mosquitoes projects are developed worldwide. Uh, the last one 
is in Brazil. So again, it's a private company who make uh, GM mosquitoes. They say uh, that's the perfect solution uh, to extend uh, mosquito species, but uh, the same as GM crops in reality. Uh, There is bad result. For example, Malaysia do it during two years and stop it because first it's very expensive. GM company are private company, the same as Coca-Cola or McDonald's. It's not to feed the world or the health of population. They don't care about. They just want to make profits. And you make GM mosquito just for business, for money. Few projects worldwide. The idea is that they want to fight against, you know, dengue fever or things like that. So mm. they introduce a gene. After that, the mosquito, through leaf, is obliged to be in presence of um, antibiotic. And then when it's, it's released in the natural environment, because there is not this antibiotic, then the mosquito is supposed to die. But the problem is that you can find this antibiotic in the banner area. So that's uh, one of the problems. The company who developed this mosquito, they came in, in New Caledonia, maybe in other Pacific countries, but we don't know about that. But they came in New Caledonia to make some tests in a very small island of New Caledonia. What is very not funny, but the thing is that we are very small countries, you know, very small islands, and they already tried in other European territories like New Caledonia, in other parts of the world, world like Cayman Island. They did the, the test over there because they know that uh, in this European territory there are no regulations about GMO, so it's a good opportunity for them to, to do that test over there because you have infrastructure and uh, researcher, it's easy for them, but no regulation, so that's very good for them. Well, you've been in Australia for a couple of days now and you'll be going home soon. What have you achieved while you've been here and what is your project for the next couple of months? Where will you be focusing? What is very good to be in the GM Free Alliance with uh, Australia and New Zealand is that we can make a broader network, so Uh, after the conference, what the good point is that we decided to grow the resistance and try to connect with Hawaii and also Indonesia so that we can cover broader s space, you know, like uh, GMO industry do, actually. One idea is to create a trans-Pacific partnership for uh, freedom <laughs> and for uh, freedom of seats. So... In the next months, I, I think we'll try to work uh, all together to see how we could increase uh, the resistance by making kind of, um, you know, common uh, letters or projects so that we are not alone in New Caledonia talking to other Pacific countries and link the people between New Zealand, Australia and, and New Caledonia. Locally in New Caledonia, one of our projects is really to obtain this uh, labeling so that It will be our campaign when we're returning in New Caledonia. And we have the um, march against Monsanto in May, so we will do it in, in Noumea. Also, with the Alliance, we wrote an open letter to the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to um, try to convince him that, or just say, say them that we are not agreed that Australian and New Zealand aid 
uh, give some, uh, you know, uh, GM seats uh, when there are problems with cyclones or uh, things like that in the other countries around. So it will be a campaign, I think, in the few next months, try to to show that uh, we are aware that they try to do that kind of thing in the other countries. So. They did that in Africa a few years ago, didn't they? they there was drought and people had no food, so poured in the GM food for the people. Mm. Yeah, in Haiti also, when there was this uh, yeah, earthquake. earthquake. Uh, mm. And Monsanto so, wanted to bring a lot of GM seeds and the Hawaiian yeah. farmers, they just... Haitian. Uh, Haitian, uh, yeah, they... Refused. Refused them and yeah. it was a big scandal over there. Yeah, they burned the first uh, seeds and the uh, government have to refuse uh, Monsanto... It was uh, 300 uh, tons for free f- from Monsanto US. No, no, thank you. <laughs> Go back with your seats. <laughs> but now maybe they are more clever, you know. The, the things we have to be aware that now they know that if they do that thing very, you know, yeah, openly, then people won't accept them. So now what they do is that they don't talk about GMOs. They say, we are improve seeds that can help you because they are more resistant and blah 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 they don't say it's it's gmo they say it's biofortified or something like this so the people they don't really know what's happened so they use also the the argument that uh, you know they want to fight against the climate change so you you have a big movement uh, at the moment with the uh, climate smart agriculture intelligent agriculture that will save everybody from climate disorder. They are pro-GM in that kind of project, so we have to be very careful. Big NGO humanitarian can't choose the way of agriculture of uh, the country they help. They have to ask farmers what you need, and they don't ask. They give uh, seeds to farmers and they say, uh, this is what you need, that's good for you. But please, big NGO in the world, please first ask population and farmer what they need and what they want. It's not really uh, help them to give a poisonous gift. Perhaps that's part of your campaign too, to have a go at the NGOs and make sure they do the right thing as well. We have people in Vanuatu also that uh, are very aware about the situation, very close to farmers, so they are aware of that kind of situation. And they can warn us and other people, say, this NGO is doing that, and uh, what do you think about the seeds? uh, Is that okay or not to to take them or not? And is social media important too for your campaigns? Yeah, yeah, it's very important. I think if we we don't have this social media, it's very difficult to be linked with also with Hawaii, for example. Now, it's it's really easier to make a kind of uh, networking uh, mm. with with that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and the example of Vanuatu, ninety-five percent of population are traditional farmers, but the difference uh, with developed country, if they have no crops, they have no money to buy food. To feed their family, they need to have crops and forget it, they'll never have money because they are not in a economic systems. They live traditionally, but they have the right to live. If they don't want to drink Coca-Cola to eat McDonald's or to have uh, Nike uh, shoes, that's their right. They don't want 
to be actor of the economy and uh, just uh, we are very satisfied and happy to come in Australia because we obtain another step with our collaboration and we organize like an umbrella of GM resistance in Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands and everybody is concerned with you know the situation of the other. Australia import uh, the tropical food from Pacific Islands and Pacific Islands import GM uh, Australia food and uh, yeah we we organize uh, this uh, umbrella and uh, quite satisfied. And you've been listening to Claire Chavez and Frederick Guerin from New Caledonia and I haven't got the web page with me but the mo- at the moment but if you put stop GMO GMO Pacific I'm sure you will find their website there and possibly their Facebook page as well. The time now is 5.37. Next on Tuesday Home Time, the second part of my interview with Alex Nissen, Jewish-Israeli-Australian peace and justice activist over many years and currently involved with Women in Black in Melbourne. Can you talk about some of the people in Israel now who are continuing the work that you started, maybe more openly against the government? And and what happens to people in Israel who come out and show their opposition to the government and support the Palestinians? At the moment, there's a whole lot of things happening and non-stop, not just to women's groups, but to generic human rights groups. And I'll go back one step. You know, I interviewed a whole lot of women and a few men about what brought them over to the side of human rights because you look at the education system and the education system indoctrinates kids in, in Israel and I think it indoctrinates them to be racist. And on my Facebook today, I got a little video made by a young woman who used to be a settler, who's now a human rights activist, and she interviews some young Israelis who just say, turn around and say, I'm happy to be a racist, and Arabs shouldn't be here. We should expel them all. And Bibi Netanyahu, I think in 1989, someone sent me an article where he said, yes, we need to expel the Arabs. So, you know, if you grow up in a society that's all about war and all about manipulating war to make sure you go into the army and you'll fight and uses the Holocaust as part of that manipulation, you get a culture and you get a population that to be critical of the government puts you in opposition to potentially your family, your work, your society, your school, your environment. So the younger kids who choose to refuse to do the army go to jail. They go through a process where they get analysed, they do physicals, they do emotional and psychological assessments. Some of the younger people are so opposed but don't want to go opposed as a... Uh, from a political perspective, so they try and corrupt their psychological assessment by showing they've got mental health issues. And to the extreme, I know of a case where a kid turned around and said, I'm you know, not sane enough to go into the army, I was abused at home, and accused his parents of abusing him, and him and his parents had to go through a whole lot of counselling and stuff like that because he acknowledged it. He used it as a process of getting out of the army. 
And that's an extreme case. There are a whole lot of other cases that happen. So kids are put, Israeli kids are put in a very difficult situation where they're either sucked into the society's norms and rules and regulations and then fulfil them, or they go in opposition to it. And to go into opposition to it means that for the rest of your life, you've got a mark against your name that you didn't do the army. And that's a pretty major issue. Now, the government tried to pass rules and regulations that you don't employ people who did the army. It's a way of getting rid of Palestinians or Israeli Arabs and preventing them from working in government positions or different areas. It's it's not all areas, but the government consistently tries to make life difficult. And then you've got Israeli kids that come into the army with a good intent, follow the rules and regulations, come out of the army go overseas, often take drugs, meet other people, do an analysis of what they've done and eventually wake up one day and realise that they abused other people's human rights. And then they have to live with that. And that in itself creates mental health issues and mental health turmoil. And then you've got the Israeli kids who go in and there was a parliamentary inquiry in Israel of one young man who went in, followed the rules and regulations and came out with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a very natural thing to come out of, and then accused the government of destroying him and his family. And he said in the inquiry, you sent me in to murder, you know, to kill a whole lot of Palestinians in Gaza in the last war. I did what you said. I killed lots of people indiscriminately. And now every night I go to bed... I see these people saying, why did you kill me? Why did you kill me? I'm not aiming to get empathy for Israeli kids and go poor Israeli soldier and and stuff like that. I'm using this as an example of systemic manipulation and abuse of Palestinians, of Israeli and, and of Israeli kids. And no Israeli kid should be indoctrinated with racism. No Israeli kid should be indoctrinated and forced into committing human rights abuses. And that's what's happening now. And so to be someone of consciousness and to support humanity is really about caring for the person who's just like you. Having said that, it's kind of like, you know, these Israeli kids don't have an option. They're indoctrinated. They follow process. And there are consequences after the process. I think this is the most corrupt right-wing government Israel has ever had. Having said that, there have been issues with every single Israeli government. If we look at the old version of Israel-Palestine in relation to the 67 borders and what the Palestinians are prepared to accept, and I think the Palestinians, all Palestinians, should have right of return... When you look at that kind of analysis, you think, well, how can Israel ever say that it was pro-peace and allow 500,000 or half a million Jews to move into the occupied territories? To me, that's a statement of, I'm really not interested in peace, you know, and I'm not going to continue to promote peace because I'm going to allow more and more Jews to move into occupied Palestine. If it was an ethical country, all the Palestinians would have freedom of movement and then the Palestinians living in the West Bank would be able to move to anywhere in Israel. The rules uh, favour Group A over Group B and hence the systemic abuse of the whole population. 
and I think that it's complicated by other issues that support right-wing politics. Now, Ayelet Shaked, who's the Justice Minister, was interviewed on, I think it was Channel 2, about her politics, and the journalist turned around and said, that's fascist. And she said, in her own words, Anis Mechaliot Fascistit, I am happy to be a fascist. And for me, it's the... As a child of refugees and the Holocaust and the indoctrination for a Jewish person to stand up and say, I'm happy to be a fascist, is the ultimate in disaster and betrayal of any ethical values that exist within the Jewish religion, which has in its essence tikkun olam, which is fixing the world and making it a more socially just basis. And Israel is far away from that. And so when you meet people who are opposed to the system, it becomes, am I safe? Can I wear a Peace Now t-shirt down the street? Can I talk about my politics at work? Well, no, not unless you want to be screamed at and yelled at in an irrational manner. And I'll give you an example. During the last Gaza war, Quite a lot of the organisations I was affiliated with organised an anti-war demonstration in Haifa. And it was an incredibly traumatic experience. The police came and they corralled all the left, all the human rights demonstrators into an area. A lot of right-wing racist people came and started throwing bottles and tomatoes and cans at the human rights anti-war demonstration as in saying death to Arabs and chanting death to Arabs is, it happens in many places in Israel and chanting violence to, uh, towards and death to left-wing activists or death to human rights activists I keep calling them left-wing but really you, you can have conservative fiscal policy and still be kind of you know a little bit anti-racism so human rights and my friends who were in that demonstration called on the police to escort them to the bus so that they could escape and the police weren't at all sympathetic and allowed the attack and abuse to happen and so particularly the Arab participants who look like Arabs actually felt that if they didn't have Jewish people standing around them they were going to get killed or severely wounded and eventually the police kind of, you know, walked them to the bus. The right wing attacked the bus and broke one of the windows. No one was held accountable. Right wing people get away with chanting death to Arabs without going to jail. Right wing people get, get away with radical, racist and inciting Facebook posts. Two Israeli Arabs have so far been arrested and questioned over their Facebook posts that have not been radical. Friends of mine who work in very different areas know that they can't talk about human rights at work because there is no conversation to be had because it's quite violent. One of my friends who tries to have conversations has stopped having the conversation because people it's not a condition and it's something that I'm working on in my head but like you have post-traumatic stress disorder 
I'm beginning to think there's a Zionist traumatic stress disorder. And I can't quite define what that means. I can say that it's when you're trying to have a rational conversation with someone who's intelligent and articulate, you end up in a cycle of something that is not intelligent and articulate and becomes quite psychotic in relation to the argument or not being able to have a, a rational argument. I don't have a problem with people in opposition to me. I have a problem with not being able to have a conversation and I think that the impact of right-wing Zionism has had on Jewish communities around the world and has had on um, Israel means that the capacity to argue different points of view is almost non-existent and the violence that comes from it is incredible and really I am very careful what I say to certain people and I self-censor all the time because people aren't prepared to hear and I think that that's just as tragic and, and, and in Israel there are many laws that promote racism. I think Palestinians have been suffering since 1948 the transition from for an Israeli from being a traditional Israeli to a human rights activist is one of enormous pain and anguish because you grow up with a culture that talks about all the festivals and the history of the festivals and the history of Israel and then you wake up one day and you meet Palestinians and you hear their history and their history contradicts your history and then you go and do the research and then you realise that you have to question everything you were raised with and everything that you believe culturally, emotionally, and when you don't have a safe space to have a discussion, it becomes problematic. Netanyahu has upped the rhetoric, and I've just scanned a few articles, so I'm not quite sure how it's moving but there's an organization called breaking the silence and breaking the silence is full of lots of zionists from middle of the road to the left and so they believe in a two-state solution but they strongly believe in a jewish state they want a palestinian state or they want a solution they serve the army they follow the rules and regulations but they also document what soldiers have to say after a war and they put it out there because they say if you're going to send me to commit these atrocities and these crimes or you're going to ask me to do these things I want the public to understand what we're doing so that they can make a conscious decision and the government is now targeting them and calling them traitors and demonizing them and saying that they're potentially looking at charging them with breaching security code of conduct which would be not seditious it's actually worse than seditious if the government gets away with prosecuting them and, and demonising them, then it's going to make their lives incredibly difficult to live in Israel. Now, having said all of that, I know a lot of Jewish people who are intelligent and articulate and who are what I call Jewish political refugees who are basically looking at Israel. I was in Israel during the last elections. I went and I voted against Netanyahu. He came in. And then the conversation on the ground was there's no future for this country, let's leave. And so you've got Jews going back to Berlin, you've got Jews coming to Australia, you've got Jews, Israeli Jews who can, leaving Israel and trying to find refuge somewhere else in whatever manner they can 
because they realise that there's no future there and that it's a disaster. The politics of how it affects me, I wouldn't walk around with a T-shirt saying peace now in either Tel Aviv, which is a Liberal city, or any other city. I would be very careful what I say to whom. I think people's lives are in danger and I think it's systemic. It's not a one-off and I think it's generated by a government that's espoused racism and continues to espouse it. You've talked about people being dumbed down, the lack of free speech in Israel itself. Other people are saying also there's a greater threat to free speech in the West where criminalisation of activism against the Israeli occupation with governments closing down on BDS. Yeah, I find that whole concept of any government anywhere on the planet, regardless of where they're from, coming down hard on BDS and, and, and actually blocking freedom of speech. I don't have to agree with fascists, and I don't like the fact that fascists have the right to to freedom of speech because they propagate violence. But BDS is a passive, active way, non-violent way of challenging a system. It worked really well in um, South Africa and it's, I think BDS is an awesome tool to raise awareness about what's happening in Palestine and Israel. Any government that looks at suppressing BDS needs to reevaluate their stance on freedom of speech. Because BDS doesn't talk about anything that's violent. It says, let's raise awareness, let's educate the population, let's have an impact on the people who are profiting from occupation, and let's hold every Israeli accountable. I don't have an issue with someone boycotting me because of BDS, because I hold Israeli citizenship. I don't have an issue with it. I absolutely understand it. And BDS, Boycott Sanctions and Disinvestment from within Israel, are calling out to all Australians and all Israelis and everybody to hold people accountable. You know, and even Rivlin says Israel is a sick society. So how do you deal with a sick society? You use whatever tool you have at hand. And I think any government that turns around and stops BDS as a tool needs to really evaluate its lack of freedom of speech because it's in complete opposition to the essence of a democracy. I don't understand, but I think that there's funding and political manipulation going on. Having said that, there's something I haven't mentioned in the whole politic of Israel-Palestine, and that's the incredible right-wing Christian fundamentalists who are Zionists, right-wing Zionists who fund the Israeli government and the settlements to, I think, the tune of $220 million a year. And that's almost impossible for human rights organisations to challenge because that funds the building of houses, it funds... Someone was saying to me, Netanyahu gets 70% of his money from uh, Christian fundamentalists. So, you know, if you've got money, you have a lot more power to not go with... to manipulate. And there's a whole other reason connected to that. But in relation to Western society, I think that it's really critical that we support democracy and work against any silencing of BDS. And I might agree with everything in BDS. I might not agree with everything in BDS. 
But I know that I don't have a choice. It is my only option. And having worked in the Israeli women's peace movements and other movements in Israel, Palestine, the situation with everything that we've done has only gotten much, much, much worse. And so now, I actually don't think Israel will exist. Kissinger said Israel in its concept is a failed concept and it won't exist by, by, in, by 2022, 23. An Israeli kid made a film 2048 and in the film it looks at Israel not existing and why Israel doesn't exist and really I think eventually more Jews will jump the line and join the human rights organisations and move away from fascism because the Jewish communities around the world are struggling with the fascist politics, fascist racist politics of the Israeli government and I think that that's going to have more impact on what happens in the future of the situation than anything else. And I think in the end, I can only hope that it will be a, an egalitarian situation where everyone has freedom of movement. And there is a grouping called a One Homeland, Two States, which is a different political issue that looks at how we can recreate a, a, another answer, but that's a different discussion. It's, it's a very tragic, tragic situation. And having been involved and, you know, I was in Gaza and I've met women here and I've got, you know, people everywhere. And a note on Gaza, this concept, Gaza's, Gaza's worse than a prison. You know, to call Gaza a prison is a compliment because in prison you get three meals a day and you get health care and you get water and you have a toilet. In Gaza, people may not have food, may not have water, may not have a toilet. Israel's destroyed infrastructure you know israel bombed a heavily dense area and didn't allow anyone to escape so no one could go into the sea no and egypt's also responsible no one could escape through egypt no one could come into israel so all these innocent people who are opposed to war and opposed to you know maybe the political system there whether it be hamas or whoever they can't escape, they're trapped and you know this unethical concept but we gave everyone warnings because we sent a little bomb to bomb the building, people didn't have time to escape. So basically Israel knew that it was bombing a trapped population with the aim of not defence but mass destruction and again it's part of the reason why you use whatever tool you can to out the Israeli government and it's time that people support it. Human rights are not fascism and it's got nothing to do with being Jewish and this equation of anti-Semitic because I'm pro-BDS or I'm anti-Semitic because I'm anti the Israeli government. Well, people who are pro-BDS can be very pro-the Israeli peace movements and pro-Israeli human rights organisations and again, not all Israelis are Jewish. So anti-the Israeli government shouldn't be synonymous with being anti-Semitic. But it's a way the right wing psychologically manipulate the situation so that people are shut down. And I think people just need to continue the conversation. And it's hard. It's emotionally very traumatic. And it's emotionally very, very draining. Because it's not nice to be abused. And thanks to Alex Nissen. And that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Bye for now. Coming up, done by law.